Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke this morning. Our text, Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 12. The title of the message is A Primer on Persecution. I read an opinion article with great interest this week on the official website of one of our nation's largest news agencies. This article lambasted the vice president's wife, Mrs. Pence. The author called her attitudes soulless, Now in what horrendous thing could the second lady could have been guilty of to deserve such a public verbal pillaring? As it turns out, Mrs. Pence's crime was that she had agreed to teach art two days a week at a Christian school that held biblical beliefs. Further, the Christian school required its instructors to sign a statement of beliefs in line with the school's mission and principles. It was those beliefs that the author of the article attacked calling the language of their faith statement disgusting and insulting. Well, even a few years ago, the idea that a Christian teaching at a Christian school, which held biblical principles and beliefs, would not have been newsworthy. But apparently today it is. Times have changed very quickly. I often say that one of the primary jobs of our pastors here is to prepare people for their death. But this morning, I aim to help prepare us to face a life in a world that seems very different than the one most of us were born into. The title of the message again is a primer on persecution. That is exactly what the Lord Jesus gives us his disciples here in the 12th chapter of Luke. You remember that in chapter 11, Jesus had been invited to lunch at the home of one of the Pharisees. He used the occasion to soundly rebuke that group of religious leaders for the sin of hypocrisy. That is pretending to be pious but lacking sincerity. Chapter 11 ended very ominously in verse 53. It says, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. That is where persecution began and it's been going on for 2000 years. Jesus of course knew that this hostility would ultimately end in murder at the cross. He further understood that those who confessed his lordship publicly would face a similar form of hostility and persecution. And here in chapter 12, he takes the opportunity to prepare his friends, his disciples for that persecution that would surely come. So let's read our text, Luke 12, verse four. Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that have no more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. 
but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing of his word. Now I want to say here at the onset that there are good brothers and sisters in other parts of the world this very moment that are experiencing true persecution. Some are in prison. Some have lost their property and some face death because of their faith in Christ. It is our duty to pray for the strength and endurance of those brothers and sisters. But friends, persecution is closer to home than you might think. We have those who grew up right here in this church who have lost their livelihood and been forced out of other countries because of their faith in Christ and others we fear may soon be. And I want to say to those people on behalf of your home church family, well done. Lord bless you. Thank you for counting the cost and enduring the cost of following Christ. We've not seen yet that sort of persecution in our culture. What we are seeing, as the article I mentioned in my introduction allows, increasingly is the marginalization of evangelical Christians in the culture and specifically in the public square. Basic Christian values have been turned upside down. The things that we have known to be shameful and sinful forever are now celebrated as noble and virtuous and the things that we have known to be noble and virtuous are grounds for public censure. Anyone with their senses can perceive the direction of the winds of culture and they're blowing to say the least unfavorably towards God's people. So the question this morning is how do we respond? Well thankfully Jesus tells us here in our text we have four simple instructions for those facing persecution for the sake of Christ. Number one, fear God only. Secondly, trust the Father fully, then confess the Son boldly, and finally, follow the Spirit explicitly. And these four imperatives just fall right off the tree into our lap. Number one is fear God only. Verse 4, Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Well, don't skip over the fact that Jesus addresses himself to his friends. There were, as we saw last week, at least 20,000 people crowding around trying to hear what Jesus had to say. But in the midst of the chaos, he's speaking to his disciples, whom he refers to as friends. I hope you were as blessed as I was by singing the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. No greater friend we can have, Jesus says, than he would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus, of course, did that at the cross. He says, friends, don't fear those who can kill the body. Now, this is not a death wish. He's, he's not telling us to be foolish, to seek out persecution. He's saying simply that those who can kill the body, that is other human beings, have nothing more to do once they have killed the body. That is, to be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. So if someone takes your life, the worst that a human can do to another person, you end up in heaven. But he's not calling us to recklessness. Jesus told his disciples in other places to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. What he is declaring is the sovereignty of God over sinful man. 
God is sovereign over the spiritual realm. That's why the scripture says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But he's also sovereign over the physical realm. That is, nothing can happen to us that God either doesn't cause or allow. So the point of Jesus' statement here in verse 4 is to be zealous to make sure that your life pleases God. One of my preacher heroes is fond of saying, or he was before his death, that he would rather be hated for telling the truth than love for telling a lie. It's just another way of saying what Jesus says here. Who do you seek to please? You can only please one, either God or this culture, so which will it be? Be zealous to make sure you don't displease God. That's what it means to fear God. There is a healthy kind of fear. Now many places in the New Testament, Christians are instructed not to fear. We're not to fear what man can do to us. We're not to be anxious for anything this world has to offer. But the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so the point is this, if you fear God appropriately, then you don't have to fear anyone or anything else. Because God is sovereign over anyone and everything else. Now there's a couple of important points to make about these two verses, verses 4 and 5. Number one, Jesus is not naive about human suffering. There are people who have never suffered, and when they see a friend suffering, they say, oh, you're going to be okay. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Well, they don't know that. They've never experienced what you're going through. They don't have the ability to empathize with you. We've been studying the book of Hebrews on Wednesday night here. One of the great verses of Hebrews says that we have a sympathetic Savior, and that He has been tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And one of the ways the Lord Jesus has been tested is through suffering. In fact, there, there's a whole branch of theology connected to the suffering of Christ called His Passion. Jesus was bloodied and bruised, but it was not just physically. He was slandered and maligned. Those of you who have been slandered and maligned at work or in your family, Jesus understands that. He's lied about. He was uh, misinterpreted. He was misquoted. Jesus understands all of that. He is reminding us that no man has any power to harm our soul. That really is the summary point of verse 4 and 5. No man has any ability to harm your soul. We are two parts. There's the body which can be harmed. Let's be honest. And I'm including in that the mind. Because I know your grade school teacher told you that sticks and stones can break your bones but words can never harm you. She lied. <laughs> words can do great harm. Emotionally. Jesus is not discounting that. He, he's simply saying that the worst a human can do to you is to take your life, but he cannot touch your eternal soul. What a blessed truth. And so he says, don't fear the one that can take the life. But he's saying, fear the one who can take the life and cast the soul into hell. That can only be God. And incidentally, for your friends who say that when, when hell is referenced in the Bible, that only means death. This verse disproves that because he puts in contrast death and hell. They're not one and the same. He says, don't fear the one that can just kill. Fear the one that can kill and cast the soul into hell. Now, we are not then to live in fear. Fear of death, fear of persecution, fear of the government, fear of anything. If we fear God, we don't have to fear anyone. 
And that leads us to our second point. Not only fear God only, but trust the Father fully. Verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than sparrows. Jesus, of course, is a master teacher. He uses terminology, metaphors from everyday life. Here he is doing it once again. Now this illustration is taken from the marketplace. People would come daily. They did not have refrigerators and they would shop. And he's talking about something that probably everyone in that audience had seen in the marketplace. Someone selling little birds, five sparrows for two cents. Now, this all sounds good. This notion that nothing can happen to us, that God doesn't cause or allow. But you may be tempted to think, how can we trust God to do what is right by us? What if we hold to our faith through persecution and in the end He forgets about us? I'm here to tell you on the basis of Holy Scripture, He will not forget you. It is not by mistake that when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, He began by teaching them to address God as their Father. He wanted them to think of God as a good, good Father. Now, one of the most important things in the world to me is for my four children to think of me as a good Father. Now, what does that mean? Well, for one, they will know that I provided for their needs, that I comfort them when they hurt, and I protected them from those who would seek to do them harm. And I like to think of myself as a good dad, but I'm sort of biased towards me sometimes. And I've seen many of you who are good fathers. But I know this, God is an infinitely greater father than I will ever be. Or that even the best father, which I'm not, could ever be. This is the grounds that Jesus gives for our trust in Him. This is why we can be persecuted all of our life and even die for the sake of Christ because we know God will only allow those things which are for our good and His glory. This is the illustration. Two sparrows for a penny in those days and five for two. So they would throw in an extra one if you could spend two cents. So the sparrow would then be the most insignificant and common form of animal life, yet God, the Creator, takes note of them in life and death. And Jesus says, look at the birds of the field. The Father feeds them. You don't have to worry that He's going to feed you. And even when they die, He's aware of it. How much more is the point? How much more is He aware of the life and the sufferings and, yes, the death of His highest creation, man, and not just man, but those that Jesus died for? This is the point of Romans 8, 31 and 32. Paul asked the rhetorical question, what shall we say to these things? What things? If God is for us, who is against us? So the point is, if God is for you, what do you have to worry about? You don't. This is why David could write the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear how much evil? No evil, for thou art with me. Now, if God wasn't with David, he would have plenty to fear. He had lots of enemies, but God was with David. And so he didn't have to fear. Because he knew even if someone took his life, 
The very last part of Psalm 23 is, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's true not just of David, that's true for every believer. He says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so if you're wondering, how can we trust God? The answer is because he gave you his son. Jesus was sent to die in your place on the cross. Every other gift, would you agree, is less than the Son. And so if He's willing to give the greatest thing, the Son, He's certainly willing to give everything less than the Son that you need. Even, He says, the number of hairs on your head are numbered. Now for some here, that's less of a miracle than others. The average person, we're told, has about 100,000 hair follicles on their scalp. The point is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And we are valuable to Him. That does not change just because we may be called to suffer for His sake. One of the most egregious heresies that I hear emanates primarily from right here in America. In fact, right here in Dallas, Texas where these TV preachers tell people that if they're suffering, it's because they don't have enough faith. That if they're called on to suffer, they need to ask God to remove it immediately because all suffering is a sign of sin. Friends, that's a lie. Some of the most godly people in the world suffer greatly. They are called to suffer for the sake of Christ and, and His calling. Now, if you're suffering because of some sin you're doing, there's, there's no reward for that. I'm often told about the young man I went to seminary with and he would come in late for class every day, every day. Sometimes 15 to 20 minutes late and finally on the day of a test he came in breathless and threw his books down and said, oh professor, I'm so sorry, I'm being persecuted. They gave me another speeding ticket. <laughs> and finally I said to him one day, would you quit blaming God for every stupid thing you do. In love, I said. <laughs> because a lot of times what we call persecution is, is nothing more than our sinfulness reaching its logical conclusion. When we're talking about suffering for the sake of Christ, we're talking about having your material possessions or your relationships or even your life taken from you for your belief your confession and your allegiance to the Lord Jesus. How do you face that kind of persecution without capitulating? Well, the third thing you must do is confess the Son boldly. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, I'm aware this is a very popular verse among Christians. Probably in the top three questions that I'm asked numerically, number of times I've been asked them, one is, is where did Cain's wife come from? And uh, one close to it is what is the unpardonable sin? Because he says here that there's a sin that, that will not be forgiven, which is blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to that. 
But, but there's first a question that needs to be asked and answered. He says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the angels of God. So the question I have is, what does it mean to confess Jesus? My friend Phil Newton is pastor in Memphis, and he wrote recently of this verse, to confess Jesus means to, quote, openly agree with God's assessment of his son, that Jesus is the eternal God who became man, that Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law on our behalf, that Jesus died an atoning death for us at the cross, that Jesus' death satisfied God's righteousness for us, that Jesus rose triumphant over sin and death, that Jesus is the only Savior and Lord. You confess that, you agree in your heart through faith and open your mouth in public agreement concerning Jesus Christ as your Lord, then Jesus assures you, however weak we feel, that he will confess us before the angels of God, end quote. I think he got it exactly right. We call this assurance of salvation and it is a precious thing. But there's also a negative form of assurance. Did you notice in these verses? Just as assuredly as those who publicly confess Christ will be welcomed into heaven, it is equally sure that those who do not confess Christ, who deny Christ, he says, will not be welcomed into heaven. Friends, there is no such thing as a secret saint in God's economy. That is not to say that if a person has a moment of weakness or even a season of doubt, he is forever lost. Verse 10 refutes that. He says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. The Son of Man, of course, being Christ. There are those who, in a moment of anger or weakness, express doubts or, or even say some terrible things. So what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Well, there's been a great example of it here in chapters 11 and 12. These Pharisees who knew the Old Testament Scriptures, they knew that Jesus fulfilled all the Messianic prophecies. They saw him, just as the other people did, perform the miracles. They heard his teaching. They had received all of God's affirmation and confirmation through the Holy Spirit that Jesus' words were true, that he indeed was the Messiah. But they took all of that mountain of evidence and they said, no thanks. In fact, they blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. They said, this is not God at work, this is the devil at work. And so there's a lot of debate as to whether or not it is even possible in today's economy to commit the unpardonable sin. I think the unpardonable sin is just this. It's just what the Pharisees did. It is to have all the information about Christ, to know it to be so, and to willfully refuse to bow your knee to His Lordship. This is what the Pharisees did. But... He is speaking, I believe, not only to the blasphemy of the Pharisees who claimed that the power of the Spirit was really the power of Satan, but also to everyone who follows the leadership of the Pharisees, that is, who is impacted by the leaven or attitude. We saw it last week, didn't we? When he warned his disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't allow that attitude of unbelief to be named among you because it will grow and permeate until that's who you are. The Spirit's job is to confirm the veracity of the Son's claims. And when all of those claims have been verified and affirmed and we turn away, we have blasphemed against the Spirit. Finally, when facing persecution, verse 12 says, we are to follow the Spirit explicitly. 
Look at verse 11. He says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, the first thing I note from verse 11 is that he says, when they bring you. He did not say, if they bring you. Reminds me of what Jesus said to his disciples, a servant is not better than his master. The reason Jesus is warning them here is not that he's unaware of what's going to happen to them. He knows exactly what's going to happen to them. He knows, first of all, he's going to be crucified. And he knows that almost all of his apostles are going to suffer a martyr's death. And countless thousands after them are going to die for the sake of Christ. And millions of them will suffer some form of persecution. So he's getting them ready for that. It's not if, but, but when. Reminds me of what Paul told the young pastor Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.13. He says, indeed, all, A-L-L, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matter of factly, if you are truly seeking to follow Christ and live a holy life, you're going to face some form of persecution. Now, it's not necessarily death, but it may be slander, it may be being ostracized from your family. It may be being moved to the margins in the public square, as we're seeing happen in our own culture. Now, this does not mean, this verse that says, don't worry about what you'll say, it does not mean don't prepare for persecution. We must prepare. That's what this sermon is all about. I'm trying to prepare us for a persecution that I believe certainly is, is coming and is here. And how do we prepare for persecution? Well, I believe it's through Bible study and memorization. We have for our children here Bible memory classes, but I'm happy to report we have Bible memory classes for adults. Because all of us need to hide God's Word in our heart. I think that is the greatest form of preparation for any form of persecution is having the Word of God be part of your DNA. So what he promises is that when you are arrested, when you are brought up on charges, when you do have to give an offense, is that the Lord will call to your memory, I take it, through the Spirit and will prompt you what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit, verse 12 says, will teach you in that very hour. He will bring it at the moment that is necessary what you ought to say. It is a promise that when you are in fellowship with the Spirit, which means to be submitting to Him and His leadership in a moment-by-moment, -moment, decision by decision way, He promises He will not abandon us in our hour of need and leave us on our own. He'll be right there with us. And by the way, it is not either a promise that we won't suffer or even die. I cannot make that guarantee to you. I can't make it to my children or their grandchildren. We don't know what tomorrow holds. I think because we have not experienced the level of persecution that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world have, that many of us grew up with a sense of entitlement. We often are pretty negative towards those in our culture who have a sense of social entitlement. But could it not be that many of us who grew up in Baptist churches have an entitlement when it comes to persecution? 
I grew up in the home of a Baptist preacher. And I had it pretty good most of my life, to be honest with you. I never really sensed a lot of persecution. In fact, when I thought about Christian persecution, that was something in my mind that happened over yonder. Persecution was for other folk who lived on the other side of, of the globe, but we're starting to understand that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I cannot guarantee you that you won't suffer or die in your lifetime or that your children or grandchildren won't. I can guarantee you this, based on the unchangeable, infallible, inerrant Word of God, if that persecution comes, He will not abandon His own. He will not. He never has and He never will. And even if they do their worst, which is to take our life, He will usher us into glory. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, held the coats of the men who stoned the first Christian martyr, Stephen, to death? The Lord stood, welcomed him. He honored him for his willingness to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. God is for us. Who can be against us? What can man do to us? Nothing that the Lord doesn't allow. Let's pray and thank Him for that truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless You today and thank You because there have been millions of Christians through the ages who have been persecuted for the sake of the gospel and You've never abandoned one of them. In fact, uh, Lord, we expect when we get to heaven, we are going to see uh, those who are greatly honored and who have many crowns because of their willingness to be persecuted. Father, I'm very careful to talk about persecution because um, compared with most places in the world, we have not felt it here. But we're beginning to, even as the disciples there in Luke 12 were seeing that first salvo of hostility against their master. Lord, we know that your word never changes and you tell us that a servant is not better than his master. We are your servants, you are our master. We know how the world treated Jesus. They slandered him and maligned him and sought to push him to the margins and ultimately killed him. So Father, we pray for those facing those things today here and abroad that you would strengthen their spirit, their resolve. Help them to know, Lord, that you'll never leave them for, or forsake them. Help us all, Lord. Be willing to forsake everything this world has to offer for the sake of pleasing you, our Lord and Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.